Welcome to the Well Woman Show, where we use intersectional feminism, mindfulness, leadership, and strategy to support smart women to change the world without anxiety, insecurity, and burnout. On the show, we challenge the status quo and support you to unlearn harmful messages that keep you playing small so you can activate your superpowers and live with joy, confidence, and ease. I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hello, hello, Well Women. Welcome back to the show. Today on the show, we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I want to ask you a question. If you are an employer or you work in a a place where there's managers and employees and uh, staff and bosses, I want to ask you, are you struggling or is your organization struggling to implement diversity, equity, and inclusion, also known as DEI, in your workplace? Or are you struggling to maintain dedicated funding for DEI initiatives and staff? I know we have seen uh, an uptick in the number um, of people being hired to work on DEI initiatives. Sometimes it's not very effective because they are just one person in a big system and it's hard to make a shift or their funding gets cut because uh, there's not as much interest now as there was a couple of years ago. So on the Well Woman Show this month, I interview Lily Zhang, a no-nonsense DEI strategist and consultant who helps organizations and leaders achieve the DEI outcomes they need. Their most recent book, DEI Deconstructed, outlines how any leader can achieve DEI outcomes through cutting-edge, accountable, and effective practices. We discuss why organizations struggle with DEI work, why this work is so meaningful, and why it's up to leaders to start the DEI process. As always, all the links and information are at wellwomanlife.com slash 314show. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from the Well Woman Academy at wellwomanlife.com slash academy. Join us in the academy for community mindfulness practices and strategy to live your well woman life. Now to my interview with Lily Zhang. I'm speaking with Lily Zhang. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Lily, I want to get started by just having you share with listeners, who are you in the world today? Sure. Great question. My name is Lily Zhang. I use they, them pronouns, and I am a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist and consultant. So essentially what that means is I go into workplaces and I help them actually make progress on these important goals and outcomes of of greater diversity, greater equity, and greater inclusion. Okay. And do you have any other ways that you identify in the world, like aside from your professional, you know, hat? Um... Oh, absolutely. Well, we we don't have 20 minutes to talk through the <laughs> entire laundry list. But yes, I also identify as a queer, Chinese American, second generation, non-binary trans person. So we'll we'll go ahead and start with those. Yeah, great. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I want to ask you, what are you working on? I know I have your book, which is called DEI Deconstructed, Your No-Nonsense Guide to Doing the Work and Doing It Right. So we'll get into that. 
But I just wanted to start by, you know, asking you, what are you working on and how does it impact women and families? I would say the biggest thing I'm working on these days is directly tied into my role which is helping companies get this stuff right. And so when I say get it right, I mean meaningfully improve the experiences of marginalized groups and really everyone in workplaces of all kinds across all industries. And of course, women are a key constituent of this work. And so in terms of projects, it really varies between clients. Some of my clients, I'm working hard on, for example, increasing women of color's experience of belonging in the workplace. I'm working on um, building environments where everyone feels included, where people feel like they can bring the parts of themselves that they want to to work and be seen and supported for it. In other workplaces with other clients, I'm focusing more on policy, helping to push new policies and processes regarding, let's say, parental leave or flexible working. That's a really big battleground right now, especially as many companies are are pushing to move back to in-person. And so all of these, I think, impact women in, in a lot of ways. We were just talking earlier about how so many things impact women, right? Practically everything in the world, and especially in workplaces these days, impacts women. And so my job I see as not only advocating for marginalized groups, including women, women of color, disabled women, queer and trans women, and so on and so forth, but ensuring that outcomes for these groups are meaningfully better than they started before I came into these workplaces. And it's it's a lot of work, right? So, so it's not any one project, but many, many projects. It, it certainly keeps me busy. Yeah, I'm sure. And I know that you contribute a lot to this area and and um, I referenced your book already, but you say in your book and in other places that you're a vocal critic of your industry. Um, and, I, and I have seen that. And I think that's one of your strengths is that you really call that out. Um, what is the industry getting wrong? So DEI, right? So Man, there's a lot. The diversity, equity, and inclusion industry, people have heard a lot about it in the last five years, especially definitely since the murder of George Floyd in the U.S. in 2020. But it might surprise people to know that the industry has been around since the 1960s for about 60 years now. And that's interesting because when you ask most people, they're their perception of the DEI industry is, oh, you mean that awful workshop I had to sit through for 90 minutes where someone rattled off definitions at me, told me I needed to stop discriminating and to be a better person while I zoned out and then left and nothing changed in my company? There's a reason, unfortunately, why that's so many people's perception of the industry, which is they're right. It's it's a huge challenge right now. This industry has existed for so long, and yet we don't quite know, or rather not enough people are doing work that actually works to move the needle, to change company culture. And a lot of this, which I write about in the book and also on social media, is because of this, let's say, toxic relationship between the industry and the organizations that bring us in. And so when you have leaders 
that are looking for a Band-Aid solution, a one-time check the box, just a 60-minute silver bullet that'll fix all of their racial problems. Anyone can sort of guess that you can't fix these sort of huge, deep problems with 60 minutes of anything. It doesn't matter how good the practitioners are. But if that's where the money is, and if that's where the interest is, that drives practitioners to offer these services. And then you get this you know, vicious cycle where practitioners are doing work that doesn't work. Companies are gleefully seeking it out. And who loses? Everyone who is experiencing workplace discrimination, who's working in an exclusive environment, who's working in a workplace where they're the only woman or they're the only black person or they're the only disabled person. And we see progress slow to a glacial pace, Mm. which is a big reason why when you ask people why the industry isn't working, they say, well, Let's think about these awful workshops that I keep getting year after year that don't do anything, right? Yeah. I absolutely can't stand it. And the only reason why I'm in this industry, right, is to make sure that we do less of that and more of what actually works. Yeah. And more outcomes. And so Mm -hmm. I know you're very focused on outcomes. So that's really interesting. And I want to pick up on something, which is that I think when we look at change and, and social change and social justice, there's a sort of inherent conflict in, uh, having in in asking those in power to then give up some of that power right mm-hmm. and and to actually make changes that create meaningful impact and so instead what we have is what you described which is organizations and entities and systems that that hold power holding on to that power but also checking a box and saying like well we dealt with that so how do you address that how do you really get in there and start helping support real change when it's just, it just is so difficult to, to really impact systems in that way? It's a question that I think about a lot. I would say there are two, let's say, broad classes of strategies that I use when addressing this, this challenge. One, for the organizations where their leaders genuinely want to give up power, they genuinely want to create more equitable organizations, but they don't know how. That's a different playbook, right? Then if you're working with an organization where their leaders refuse to budge, they refuse to do a thing. So we'll start with the first group. If leaders actually want to do something, what I find to be the best and most effective way to help is to, one, create a vision for their organization that is actually meaningfully better for even those in positions of power than the status quo is. Mm. Because one of the challenges of this work, I, I I explore in the book, essentially the big history of the DEI industry and how you know we've gotten a lot of things wrong. One of the lessons that comes through over and over again from the history of our industry is when people feel like the status quo will be better for them than whatever else people are pushing for, they're never going to want to help create that new future because they don't see a place for themselves in it. They're worried or anxious that advocates will simply take this pyramid of power and invert it and just put all the same people in positions of power at the very bottom. And and they get terrified. They're saying, well, I don't want to be treated as awfully as I'm treating you. So why would I give you any power? Right. And and I get where the fear comes from. I, I think it's unwarranted. But the way to diffuse that is to say, no, 
we are genuinely trying to create a future that's better for everyone, especially the most marginalized, but frankly, you too, people at the top, right? I I often have this conversation with people from privileged groups. So let's say cisgender, heterosexual, wealthy, non-disabled white men. I often have conversations with these groups where I say, look, I know things are actually decent for you in the workplace right now. Can you imagine that they're even better in this new future that we're trying to create? And usually there's like, well, what are you talking about? And I say, well, Look, I know you're bummed out because in your workplace, even with people with all of your privileges, you didn't go to Harvard and everyone at the top of your company went to Harvard. And aren't you just bummed out that you're sort of shut out from this upper echelon because you didn't go to Harvard no matter how hard you work? And they're like, yeah, I'm kind of bummed out about that. And then I say, imagine if we actually had something like a real meritocracy. Imagine if it didn't have anything to do with how much your manager likes you. There's a standardized process for people with any identity from any background to actually succeed. Imagine if we actually root out discrimination of all kinds against all people to make it so if you're actually working hard and contributing, you can find success. Wouldn't that be incredible? And these these people say, well, some of them say, well, we have that already. So it takes a little bit bit of prodding to get them Mm -hmm. to the point where they're saying, okay, maybe it's not perfect. But once they recognize that, they say, well, as long as that's actually the world we're trying to create, and you're not just trying to put me at the bottom. And I say, no, no, we're not. Then they say, I think I'm on board. Mm -hmm. And from there, we start working on that change. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of my answer to this question that there's two groups of people. Some groups of people just don't want to share power. They know things are unequal. They don't want to do anything about it. They like the way things are. And it's in situations like these where I say DEI practitioners are not magic. We can't do everything. There are some workplaces where I say, we need to make sure that government regulation is pushing you to change. We need to make sure that your employees can unionize and organize to force change from the bottom. Because if we just rely on, on quote unquote, self-regulation, are you being you know magnanimous and sharing power from the top? That's never going to happen. And if I, as a practitioner, kid myself that I can somehow go in and magically change your heart and mind, I might be part of the problem. Right. So I'm a big proponent of different solutions and different strategies for different problems. And I'll be the first person to admit a DEI practitioner isn't the silver bullet for every organization. There are some people that I can work with. There are some organizations where I can genuinely make that impact. And there are some which I say, you know what? I can't wait for that lawsuit because that's the only reason. That's the only way to make you do anything because you're not going to listen to me. Mm, So fascinating. And Can you give an example, Lily, of a project or a company where it was homogenous and exclusive and inequitable and you you went in and worked with them and and really did create some outcomes that you're proud of? Yeah. So let me think. The story that I share the most is for a, a company that was bleeding a lot of people of color and women at the junior level. So they would hire in a whole bunch of folks. They spent a lot of money on their hiring campaign and they found that the turnover rate for these groups was, I think it was something around between half a year to one and a half years, which is really fast. Um, It was much higher than their normal turnover rate for, let's say, white folks or men. And so we worked together and they said, look, you know, what's what's going on here? And we identified it was actually the onboarding process or really the lack thereof of an onboarding process. And the fact that these new hires had no community coming in, no support, 
no ability to connect with each other and their teams and their managers. And so as a result, they were getting really quickly discouraged and burned out and feeling disconnected from company culture. This was also during the pandemic, which made it even harder to find that connection. And so you know, we didn't fix everything all at once, but we said, if this is where we're losing the most people, this feeling of community, this onboarding process, let's let's work on that. Let's create a process where these new hires can connect with each other, where managers are given the tools to not only support their own team members who are new, but also connect them with other managers and other teams to get out of silos. Let's also promote more community in terms of things like employee resource groups um, and even just informal ways to connect with each other outside of of work-related meetings. And let's see what that does. And that organization ended up, and it was partially because I pushed and also partially because this was something that they were already working on too. Um, They ended up creating a new onboarding program. They ended up creating a whole bunch of new initiatives to promote this sort of connection. Mm -hmm. Um, The the actual initiative itself, I think, is less important than the fact that it worked because we actually gathered data afterwards, right, a year later, and said, have we actually done anything to change the turnover rate? We had. For all the folks that were hired during that latest period with the onboarding program, we dramatically reduced turnover for them. And that was really powerful. Now, does that mean that I, you know, single-handedly went to a company and like ended discrimination everywhere? No, absolutely not. I would like to think that partially because we centered this work on on the data and the outcomes that mattered and created something um, in partnership with many different stakeholders that we were able to identify the problem and then solve the problem and then move on. Right. And and that's the kind of DEI work I want to see more folks doing. Right. Not very dramatic, flashy stuff that we spend a lot of time talking about that doesn't necessarily succeed. But, you know, sometimes really granular, sometimes even boring work. Right. Where it's just a matter of like, let's identify where there are challenges and let's fix them. Yeah. And then go on. Yeah. And so I think, and you, you referenced this earlier, but I, you know, in 2020 and after George Floyd died, we saw a real increase in attention and even budgeting and hiring in DEI uh, internal staff, but also probably consultants and and that. And now we're seeing, I, I think some of those programs falling apart a little bit mm-hmm. um, and being dismantled and not being funded while simultaneously we're also seeing the largest number of women professionals and leaders leaving their positions. Yes. What do you say about that to people who really actually are concerned about this and want to, to do the right thing? And what do you see are some next steps? So for people concerned about this, I, I think, you know, it's absolutely warranted to be concerned about these larger trends because it means, or at the very least, it means to me that organizations that talked a big talk for the last, you know, two to three years are not actually following through when the media spotlight is not on them. And for folks who have worked in this industry, especially in DEI for a long time, they'll know that this is how it goes. Like there are always boom and bust cycles where something horrible gets in the news and companies immediately make the short-term reaction of, oh, we have to do a whole bunch of quick things for it, make a whole bunch of promises. And then when the news cycle moves on, that attention, that funding, that resources, that political will goes away. 
we actually saw the exact same thing happen uh, right before the COVID-19 pandemic, right? As soon as lockdown started happening, DEI professionals got laid off left and right, essentially with leaders saying, now we're here to focus on business priorities and DEI isn't that. And so, you know, what they say about history, it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And we're definitely going through that again. My advice, especially for folks who are concerned about this and want to do something about it, is the next time interest spikes, because that's a certainty, right? As much of a certainty as it is that interest will wane, like it's waning now, I hate to say it, something will happen. I don't know what, I don't know when, but something will happen that will make interest go back up again. And with the benefit of hindsight, everybody, not just DEI professionals, not just women leaders, but everybody who has a stake in these issues needs to say, we're not going to go through this same hamster wheel again. We're not going to be satisfied with just the one-off checkbox answers to these huge problems. You've done this before. What will it mean to invest in long-term initiatives that are not trendy, that don't get removed as soon as you know fears of recession come back up again, and that are sustainable and long-term enough to actually you know to achieve some real impact? Like I want to see stakeholders holding their employers much more accountable than we have been in the last few years, right? Like employers eat up goodwill when they do stuff like this. And yeah. some of the benefits of that are that we don't get tricked a second time. So I want to see us not get tricked a second time. And when interest goes back up, we need to turn the heat back up too and say, we need real investment. We need real change or else we're not going to be happy. Okay, I'm speaking with Lily Zhang, diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, strategist, and consultant, and author of DEI Deconstructed, your no-nonsense guide to doing the work and doing it right. And we'll be right back. For 25 years, I've been working in social justice and systems change because when women and girls thrive, families thrive, and whole communities thrive. What I realized through my work was that there are systems at play that work to keep women leaders functioning at half their capacity because of overwork, overwhelm, and burnout. The very nature of our linear strategic systems of power that have worked so well for so many high-achieving women are the exact reason we're crashing and burning at such high rates. So we end up with highly capable women leaders who are unable to realize their potential, whether it's in their health, their relationships, career, prosperity, or social impact. I'm Giovanna Rossi, host of The Well Woman Show on NPR. And what I do is work with high achieving women leaders who feel stuck in their careers, overwhelmed by trying to do it all, facing a health crisis or unhappy in their relationships so that they can finally enjoy life again, be the leader they know they can be and make the impact they're here to make with their families and communities. It's my mission to use a feminist lens and the Well Woman Life framework to challenge the status quo and dismantle systems that work to maintain unequal power so that all women can thrive as leaders in their communities and families. Get started on your Well Woman leadership journey by applying for the group program at wellwomanlife.com academy. 
We're back on the Well Woman Show with Lily Zhang, DEI consultant and author of the book, DEI Deconstructed. And Lily, we're going into a segment called Superpowers for Success, where I ask you a quick round of questions and it really enables listeners to get to know you as a leader. So I want to ask you first, what does success in life mean for you? Mm, Achieving the goals that matter to me being surrounded with friends and family and making an impact that I can see and measure in the world. I love that. When did you know that you were really good at what you do? Hmm. Tongue in cheek answer. When I started seeing that the data came back showing that the stuff I was doing was working. (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, confidence and impact are slightly different things. I think I've always been confident that the work that I do works, but I certainly got feedback early on in my career that some of the initiatives that I designed did not create the impact that I wanted them to. And so I kind of single mindedly honed my craft and focused a little more on accountability and getting good data. And so, when I know things work, it's because the data says they work. And so, you know, that's plenty to be confident about. Somebody said something like, we don't need to measure whether our work works. We just know it works in our heart. And I think everybody at my table nodded their head really solemnly. You know, they had just heard something important. And I was at the table thinking, oh my gosh, am I the only one here who disagrees? I think this is now my problem. And I think I need to be the person who pushes for something different. I love that so much. And I just really want to call that out for listeners, because I think that these are the moments when it's really clear what your contribution is. Lily, can you describe a personal habit that contributes to your well-being so you can do everything you do in the world? I block out meals, exercise, and sleep on my calendar so that every time I uh, want to overdo it, I can't, or I at least have to physically reschedule something on my calendar, which is actually a hard enough barrier that it makes it difficult. So if I have a reminder on my phone, that's like, you need to eat in 30 minutes. I'm like, no, no, no. And I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah, exactly. Gosh, we do a lot of work on burnout in this community and yeah, having those boundaries and then committing, you know, committing to that. I'm surrounded by people who, this sounds weird, don't care at all about the work that I do, which is great because it means that when I disconnect, I really truly disconnect. I I think for those of us doing work that we're passionate about, it's super easy to just let that passion overwrite our boundaries. I love that. And thank you for naming that. I, I so relate. So Lily, what superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time? I'd say synthesis. I'm really good at taking really complex, mex- uh, messy things and saying them in like two to three sentences, which is an oddly specific superpower, but it works out pretty well. I'd, it just kind of is a thing that I do very well. And I'll take it, right? It means that I'm good at my job. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely a superpower of yours. I've seen you write in that way and it is very powerful. What advice would you give your younger self? Caring about an issue really passionately is powerful, but the moment you care about anything more than you care about yourself, 
you lose your way. Because mm. I think as a young professional, and especially as a young activist, I think I measured my self-worth by how outraged I could get and how much I could burn myself out in service to a cause. And looking back, not only did I, you know, ruin my own health, but I didn't even achieve anything that I wanted to. Okay, Lily, you work in diversity, equity, and inclusion and where does gender come into that? And do you identify as a feminist? Gender comes into quite literally all of it. You can't have any conversation about DEI or progress without bringing in gender, much as you can't do it without bringing in ability or race or sexuality. All of these things intersect because what it is we're trying to do is to create systems that are better for everyone. And as every system impacts women, building better systems for everyone requires that we design intentionally for women, for all women, by the way, not just the most privileged women we can find, but the women who are at the margins of the margins, because designing for them means a rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, now, do I identify as a feminist? Sure. I, I uh, don't get too many opportunities to sort of lead with that. But uh, if we're defining feminist as we believe in, you know, equity and liberation for all women, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes we do need to pull it out because it can get buried or overlooked. Thank you for explaining that and naming that the way you did. Last question for you. What are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand? Okay. I am currently reading the new paperback copy of The Wake Up by Michelle Mijung Kim, a good friend of mine and colleague because her latest book, The Wake Up, just uh, had a reprinting. I'm also reading uh, White Women, which is an incredible book. And I, I recently started rereading The New Jim Crow, which is a classic. All right, Lily Zhang, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I want to tell you about a cool new product from Well Woman Life, which is the 2023 Planner. Now, this has been in the works for a long time, and we've been using it in the Well Woman Academy, but now for the first time, it's available for purchase from the wider community. You can go to wellwomanlife.com slash planner to find out more about that. Uh, but just to say, it's really cool because it's a daily look at uh, how to use the Well Woman Life tools to apply them in your life every day. So it includes how to prioritize, how to reconnect with your purpose, um, and how to re-energize and how to really find what nourishes you on a daily basis. So check it out, wellwomanlife.com slash planner. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your Well Woman Life, head over to wellwomanlife.com. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week, so be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.